We'll open up to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. We'll wrap up our summer series. It's been kind of a mini-series on some minor prophets. We did Jonah, we did Nahum, now we'll do Malachi, and that will take us through the end of the summer. Uh, Malachi, again, it's the last book in the Old Testament. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you'll find that on page 950. And in just a few moments, we'll read the first five verses. How do you know that you are loved? How do you know that you're loved? How how do you know that your parents love you? Whether you're a kid or you're an adult, how do you know that your parents loved you? Is it because they tell you? Uh, Because they're kind to you? They provide for you? They discipline you? I just had a a talk with one of my kids. Uh, We were talking about allowance, and she was wondering if she was going to be getting her allowance soon. And I said, I allow you to live in this house. I allow you to eat our food. That's, that's plenty. No, there's also other allowance. But um, how do you know that you're loved? If you're married, how do you know that your spouse, your husband, your wife loves you? Because they put a ring on your finger and promise to? Is it because they tell you at the end of every phone call? How do you know? How, how do you know that, that God loves you? Of course, that's where our passage is going to go. But how do you know that God loves you? Maybe you felt unloved in any of these relationships. Maybe that's actually kind of a painful question. Maybe, whether it's parents or spouse or some other relationship, you wonder. Maybe they, they don't say it and you wish that they would. Maybe, maybe it's because their words don't, don't line up with their actions. They might say that they love you, but their actions don't seem to match that and it's confusing. Maybe when it comes to God... Because he seems distant and far away. And you wonder, if he loves me, how, how would I know? He, he, can't, he can't, can't hug me. I, I can't hear his voice audibly. And furthermore, my life isn't going how I thought that it would. If God really loves me, why, why is my life hard in these particular ways? Those are, those are questions that kind of bubble up for people. This will be Israel's experience, the very beginning of Malachi. Go ahead and read this now, verses 1 to 5, and I want you to watch for the interaction on that topic about God's love for us. Malachi, beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and rebuild up the, uh, build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear them down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God says, I have loved you, he tells to the people of Israel. And they say, how? And I don't think we're meant to read that as like a gentle inquisitive. It's kind of a defensive 
How have you loved us? And God's answer is, I would say, surprising. And it sheds some light on, on kind of one more piece of evidence in a parallel way for how, how you know that God loves you. So let's walk through this in a few points here. And the first point uh, we see is just simply this introduction, this oracle of the Lord through Malachi in verse 1. The oracle of the Lord through Malachi. That's the beginning word, the oracle. Oracle means a, uh, it's more than just a message. It's a message, but it has the idea of a, of a burden to it. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever had news you had to bring somebody that just felt weighty? Maybe it was letting them know about a diagnosis of cancer or death of somebody they loved or some other tragedy. It's, it's a message, but it is a weighty message. And that's this idea of oracle. There's a burden language to it. So Malachi comes with this burden for the people. It's to Israel through Malachi... But it's God's word. It's God's warning. It's God's message. Uh, a little bit about the audience of this. It says it is to Israel. Uh, sometimes I think jumping, jumping to different books in the Bible kind of feels like time travel. right? Like we were in Jonah just a month ago. And Jonah around the year 800 B.C., although there's some flexibility there. We went from there to Nahum, which was about 160 years later about 640 B.C. And now in Malachi, this last book, we're jumping almost 200 more years, right to about, about 450 B.C., roughly. And it's the last book written in the Old Testament before 400 years of silence, uh, before the time of John the Baptist and then Jesus. What's, what's happened in those years? That From Jonah to Nahum, now to, now to Malachi. Well, in those Remaining those last couple hundred years, the people in the southern kingdom of Judah were carried away by Babylon into captivity. And they remained there for about 70 years. You can read about that in the book of Daniel. You can read about that experience there in captivity. And then they came back, some of them anyways, back to the land. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so some of the people came back into the land, which is where this book of Malachi finds them. They're back in the land... But they're struggling with discouragement, uh, opposition, and even apathy. And they've lost their vision as the people of God. And they're going through, just kind of going through the motions spiritually. And so this book is coming as a burden to these people. And it comes with a tender claim right at the very beginning. And that's our next point. A tender claim in verse 2 where God says... I have loved you. I have loved you. You'll notice over this next month a pattern in Malachi. There'll be a claim like this, I have loved you. And then a question, how? How have you loved us? And then an answer. And it starts here. This pattern starts here and will be repeated several times throughout the book of Malachi with a claim, a question, and then an answer or an explanation. And I want you to notice that although this book will be somewhat convicting, it starts not with conviction, but with, I have loved you. This declaration of love. I have loved you. It's a declaration to Israel that, that God has 
and ongoing love the people. This word for love, it's Hebrew word ahava. And in fact, go ahead, Jonah, you, uh, Jonas, you can put up the, this image. This is actually taken from a, a series of videos by a group called The, the Bible Project. Uh, they have some good overviews. Uh, a lot of their stuff is really good. A few things maybe I'd have questions with, but a lot of it's really good. And they have a great video on this word, uh, ahava, uh, this Hebrew word for love. And it is a, it is a wide-ranging word. As you run through the Old Testament, where God says here, I have loved you, what would the people think? It's used, it's used sometimes of like physical affection. Uh, the king of Persia has ahava, has love for Queen Esther. But also it's used of Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham ahava, he loves his son Isaac. It's a parental love. Jonathan shows ahava for David. Uh, a brotherly love. Uh, the people loved King David. It's the same word. It's actually even used for loyalty between the king of Tyre, um, Hiram, and David. That he, Ahava, he had loyal love for him and he extended into helping David's son Solomon. So it's a, a word that's more than affection. It includes affection, but it's more than that. It's it's, it's loyalty and care and, and action for the person. And so God says, I have loved you. This word of affection and care and action on behalf of. And it's specific. You, you Israel. This is not just a blanket term for I've loved all of humanity. Although in one sense that's true. But it's a very specific saying, I've loved you, Israel. And as you look back through their history, you see that repeated and you see that expressed. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, in talking to the people as he's about to bring them into the land, he says, Moses says, of God, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. He says he loved your fathers, meaning kind of the predecessors here of the Jewish people, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, says he loved them, so he chose you and he rescued you. He brought you up. A little bit later in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, still speaking to the same people, he says it's not based on your power or your numbers or your, even your own personal righteousness. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people's. For you were the fewest of all the people's. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It says he, he loved you. Why? Well, just because he loved you. It's, it's not a love that was based on something inherent in the people that they earned it. It was God's free electing, choosing love to set it upon this people. It, and that was a love that persisted in spite of their rebellion. It could not be earned, so it could not be lost. Th think about this. Um, think about a man who says to a woman, I love you. And she says, why? Why do you love me? The man's probably thinking in a moment here, is this a trap? Like, why am I supposed to answer this question? But he, but he wants to give a good answer. She says, why, why do you love me? How, how, how should he answer that question? 
mean, we can think of like bad ways, right? Like you're just a great cook. Like your enchiladas are awesome, right? Like, hmm, that, that doesn't seem like a great reason. Or like your roommate turned me down. And, and like, like we can think of any range of like bad answers. But what about some answers that might seem good on the surface? But as we probe, there's some weaknesses there. What if he says, you're, you're brilliant and you're beautiful and you're funny What would be the problem with saying my love is based on those things? What if those things go away? What if after 30 years of marriage she has a stroke and her intelligence is hidden behind the lack of ability to communicate or her humor or so-and-so? If a love in some ways is conditional on these things that we appreciate, then that can be lost if those things are gone. But if his answer is, I love you, because I, I love you, and I'm committed to you. And there's certain things that I love about you, but I will love you even if those are gone, because my love is not conditional based on what you can do for me. Well, in some ways, that's this declaration of God's love for Israel. It's not it's just because you're more in number or you're particularly great, but I've just set my love upon you. So they ask, after having been told throughout their history over and over again, that God loves them. Now they ask, how? How have you loved us? Why might they ask that question? What, what might be that they would, they would ask? Well, remember, their immediate circumstances would give them reason to doubt that. It, it, immediately what they're going through right then, but even over the last couple hundred years, as they've been taken away into captivity, and then some of them brought back but they've been harassed and attacked along the way, and now they're living in the land, but it still doesn't quite feel like theirs, and they're being overseen by another group, the Babylonians. It's been humiliating and painful. They're back in the land, but somewhat as servants. They're still waiting for the Messiah that God's promised and yet is not there. So they wonder, do, do you? How? It doesn't look like it. Think about why do, why do believers sometimes doubt God's personal love for them today? Why, why maybe, maybe, maybe you've wondered this. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe you have. Like sometimes it's because God just seems distant. They can't be hugged by him. They can't hear his voice as, as opposed to like a, a person who shows that love. So God just seemed far away, they might say. Or maybe it's nothing to do with God. Maybe it's to do with them. They say, I... I'm such a mess. How could God love me? Um, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem true based on who I am that God could love me. Uh, maybe they just don't know how to, to notice and interpret God's love because they think of love in a certain category and they look at their life and say, I don't, I don't know that I'm feeling loved. Maybe it's because, kind of like Israel, from history and present experience. Maybe, maybe life has been hard. Maybe it is hard presently. And they think, if God loved me, why would this be happening or why would this have happened and so it might be some really similar ways for why Israel is asking that question so God answers and his answer is I would say surprising and perhaps on the surface confusing look at the answer uh, a surprising answer 
It says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Um, and so on. We'll, we'll go through the rest here in a minute. Perhaps not the answer they were expecting, and perhaps not the answer that you were expecting. And, and it can be somewhat surprising, and I would say maybe even confusing. And, and when we encounter something in the Bible that is confusing, I want to encourage you to look at that as an opportunity to learn something about God that you didn't know before. We, we could look at something confusing and be frustrated, and be like, why isn't this more clear? Why don't I get it? Or we can look at it and say, God, there's something about you that I don't know, and I'm about to learn. And, and so help me to know, help me to understand you uh, in a different way. And so I think that's what we see here in this surprising answer, is there's more to learn about God. And, and as we press into that, it's, it's good for us. So two parts to this answer. First is the selection, or you could even say the election, of Israel over Edom. This selection of Israel over Edom. And he goes back to the story of Jacob and Esau, which takes place. We won't read the whole thing, but it's in Genesis chapter 25. And in Genesis chapter 25, we've gone now from Abraham to Isaac. And now Isaac and Rebekah are expecting, and she's expecting twins. And with these twins that are in the womb, in Genesis 25, verses 22 to 23, this is what they're told. The children, these twins, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, Lord, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That last line was counter to the cultural practice. It was the older always had preeminence. So even the firstborn here would be the one that had preeminence. And he says, no, it's going to be switched. Not just for these two children, but for the nations that would come from them. And as you continue to read through Genesis over about the next 11 or 12 chapters, starting in chapter 25, that's what you see. Uh, by the end of chapter 25, these two, Esau and Jacob, are grown, um, at least close to. And Esau... Uh, there's this famous story where he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew because he's hungry. But then it goes on, and Jacob, in chapter 27, secures Isaac's blessing through deceit. And, and we see that as a pattern for Jacob. It's not like Jacob's this great guy. Jacob is one who deceives and connives up until the very end, where then finally there's actually a, um, some neat repentance there. But, but there's a, a, a lot of struggles up until then. Jacob ends up fleeing Esau for safety. Uh, Jacob goes to a man named Laban and marries uh, two women, Rachel and Leah, lives there for decades, returns, and is at peace with Esau. But then from Esau, over the chapters that come, comes this nation that we call the Edomites, living in Edom on the other side of the uh, Dead Sea from Israel. And this conflict continues now, not between these brothers, but between the people groups that come from them, between Israel the people, and the Edomites, and sometimes called the Amalekites. And so for centuries, they battle, and they fight. And Edom, Edom attacks Israel, 
They do so in Exodus 17 as Israel is vulnerable and coming back from Egypt and they're attacked by Edom. It happens in Numbers, in Judges, in 1 Samuel where Edom continues as a people group to attack, uh, attack Israel. And so throughout the Old Testament, Edom is warned uh, by God. The whole book of Obadiah is written to Edom, warning them of judgment to come. But it says here, going back to Malachi, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. From the very beginning, this language of loved and hated, it's universally considered by by commentators as as, um, choice. God's choice and rejection uh, of Jacob and not of Esau, right from the very beginning. It's not so much a statement of animosity. In fact, In Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, the people of Israel are told, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. Uh, So it's not not language of detesting, hating, but of of choosing, of electing. So it goes on. He says, first, Israel, through Jacob here, was selected as God placed his affection on this people. But... Additionally, Edom will be defeated. In the second half of verse 3 through verse 5, we see uh, some language about the defeat of Edom. It says, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, we will return and rebuild. But the Lord says, they may build, but I will tear it down. It says, this is going to continue. They've been Judged as the people, just like Israel had been taken away into captivity, so uh, Edom has experienced that at the hands of the Babylonians. They've been attacked as well. And they're planning to rebuild, and God says, no, this judgment will continue, and they will be defeated. Here's where this maybe is critical and helps you understand why Israel is asking this question. Edom continues to exist at the time Malachi is written, and they continue to attack. And so they wonder, God, if you say you've loved us and you will defend us, why does this enemy continue to exist? And why do they keep attacking us? And so God once again assures them, they may, they may now, but they will be torn down. It has not happened yet, but it will. And verse 5, your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. They're doubting, they're wondering, they're not seeing it. He says, but you will see it. You will see it and, and your response will not be, man, we are, we are super great as a people. Like, we, we must be really awesome that we've done this or that God's done this for us. He says, no. What you'll say is, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. He is accomplishing what he said. Well, how do we, how do we apply this? Well, one of the challenges, I think, sometimes with the minor prophets, which is why we're trying to spend some time here, is we read it, and sometimes we're confused. And even if we understand historically, we might wonder, what does this have to do with my life? Edom is not breathing down your neck to attack. right? You've not been away in captivity. How does this apply? And so I want to give you, I want to give you one particular way that I think we can apply this. You may be experiencing, not what they experienced exactly, but you may be experiencing discomfort and disarray 
you may be wondering, does God love me? You don't find the answer, I think, from just reading this and just flattening it out and ignoring historically what was going on and just taking that and applying it directly to yourself. But what you do is you recognize timeless principles here about who God is and how he acts, and you see the way that that does fit your life now. Uh, Let me think of this this in terms of like an analogy. Um, Imagine finding an, an old letter. Stumbled across it, maybe behind the walls in your home as you're remodeling. And this letter, you realize, as you read, it's from a father to a daughter. And he's explaining to his daughter that although she has doubted his love for her throughout her life, that he has always truly loved her. And in fact, the things that caused her to doubt his love, maybe it was discipline, maybe it was challenging her to try new things, uh, maybe it was pressing her to do her best. Those things that, that she struggled with were actually expressions of his love for her. Now, let's say that you also have a strained relationship with your father, and you read this letter. It wouldn't make sense to just map that on and just pretend that's from your dad to you. That, that wouldn't make sense. That would be make-believe. But what you might do is you read it is realize, oh, my dad loved me actually the same way. And and the things that I viewed as not an act of love were actually a loving act. And so even though this letter's from a father to a different daughter, it, it, it maps with your experience. And it helps you to see your own father's love for you in a different way. Well, likewise, we, we're not in the same situation here as Israel. We don't want to pretend that we are. But there's a ton of parallels. And in fact, far greater even than this letter, hypothetical letter from a father to a daughter, we recognize here it's actually the same God that is your God. And, and, and you're not Israel in this perfect match sense, but you're the people of God. And you've been grafted in here in some way. And, and the Father's affection for you is, is true. And so in one sense, God is saying that. I have loved you And he proves it in the same way that he proved it for Malachi. And he proves it by defeating your enemies. Uh, That's the statement here, basically. He says, Israel, I've loved you. And they say, how? And he says, I I am defeating your enemies. And I will carry that out. And so you might think, yes, God, defeat my enemies. There's this guy, Gary, at work, and he just kills me, and I... Here's this list. I get them. Well, no, and in fact, especially consider the book of Jonah that we spent five weeks in, where we're urged to have compassion even on our enemies and wanting their repentance and not their destruction, although recognizing that God is a God of justice, as we saw in Nahum, and He can bring justice. So, what does it mean that God will, will defeat and has defeated your enemies? Well, think about what does the New Testament say about how God has demonstrated his own love for us? Romans 5.8, classic passage on this, says God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So on one hand, the best answer to that question, if God says, I have loved you, and you say, how have you loved me? He says, I've demonstrated my own love toward you and that while you were still a sinner, while you were separated from me, while you had sinned against me, Jesus came and he died for you. That, that is the clearest declaration of his love. But what does it have to do with your enemies? Well, ultimately, who are your enemies? What are your enemies? Ephesians 6.12, 
It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not ultimately against people. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is a cosmic battle that you are caught in the middle of. Between Satan and his demonic forces and God. And it's not a one-to-one battle as if good and evil are somewhere, somehow kind of evenly balanced. No, God will conquer, but he has allowed Satan to exist and tempt and deceive and seek to destroy people. That is our real enemy in that sense. And the book of Colossians chapter 2, talking about the death of Christ yet again, it says in chapter 2 verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, these spiritual forces that are our real enemy, says he has disarmed them. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is, through Christ. And this language of public display is of a conquering general who has defeated his enemy and publicly displaying them. Your real enemy, yeah, it's not other people. It's not Gary from work. Um, it's, it's these spiritual forces. And in dying for your sins as a substitute, another effect of that, it says, is the defeat of these spiritual forces. That they are no longer that which we need to fear. They're no longer that which would have power or control over us. They have been defeated. The additional enemy that has been defeated, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, it says is death itself. 1 Corinthians 25, uh, 15, 25, and 26. It says, He must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is still a, an enemy. We're reminded of that every time we do a funeral. This Friday, the funeral that we did a couple days ago for Nancy at 38 years old. It's a reminder that death is an enemy. And, and it will continue to be in this time until we go to be with Christ or until Jesus returns. But for now, is an enemy that is wounded. You don't need to fear anymore, but it's still present and you will die someday. That is this enemy that is death, but it has been conquered by Christ because he died and rose again. So if you trust in him, you don't need to fear death because even when your body is destroyed, you will be with him. And then one day, just like the people of Israel were still living with Edom as an enemy but one day would be conquered. So now we still live with death as an enemy, but one day death will be conquered and there will be no more. How has God shown his love for you? By the defeat of your enemies. Spiritual forces. Death itself. That is the declaration of God's love. Let's pray.